You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. On today's episode, you'll hear a conversation with Scott Harrison, who is the CEO and founder of Charity Water. This weekend was World Water Day, which focuses on the importance of fresh water. As we see people rushing to stores to stock up on essentials during our public health crisis, we realize how lucky most of us are to have access to safe water. But that is not the case for over 663 million people in the world who live without clean water every day. I was so inspired talking with Scott, hearing about Charity Water, how it came to be and what they're doing, and how access to clean and safe water can change the trajectory of people's lives. Hi. Good to be here. <laughs> I'm so happy you're here. We were just going ham on some things before we started recording, and I realized we should just get started. I know. I kind of wish we had some of that on tape. I know. Well, we might. <laughs> I don't know. We Maybe might we'll have get just there the again. tail end. We'll get there again. We'll get there again. The last um, time we were together, we were in a theater here. Yes. Weren't we? Yeah. And I got to interview you about your book, when you which fantastic. has done fun. so amazing. You made Thanks. the New York Times bestseller list the week after our event. It was cool. I was, it was very cool. I got that call it. at LAX Whoa. on a Wednesday, and the whole publishing team and editor, they were screaming. Oh, that's so cool. Is that a surreal thing? <sighs> you know, maybe we get there, but it was a little more anticlimactic than I'd hoped. Because uh, it's just a thing that happens? It's just a, it's a thing. It's a list. It's a, right. I don't know. It's a thing that happened. It was cool. It was cool. I think in that, you know, I was in transit and I think I did a 16 city book tour or something. And you're just, you're yeah. in a daze. You're working so hard. You're, yeah. you're flying around and talking and you're saying the same thing and you're, you're on the, like the road show. Yeah. And it was just, of course it was in the airport. You know, I remember I was actually having, <laughs> I was at LAX having an IPA at like 5 PM on, I don't know, on a flight somewhere. And then, you know, I got the call and it was like an unknown number and I picked it up and, yeah, it was cool. It was right after, I was, probably a day after I saw you. Wow, so cool. that's so wild. Thanks for helping with that. Yeah, oh my God, it was my pleasure. But it is funny, isn't it, that the thing that from the outside looks to be this big, shiny 
you know, like the jewel you get in the video game. Yeah. It happens to you and you're like, I'm at the airport. This is weird. What's going on? <laughs> you know, it never quite. I think I was happier for my team in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of times, maybe this is your experience, you know, you get some sort of award or accolade and you're like, I don't deserve that. All these other amazing people that worked on it. You know, you're, you want to, you want to give away the credit. That's interesting. So. Yeah. So it was good. I called them immediately. You know, I called my dad. I called like the people that mm-hmm. I thought would get maybe even more benefit from it. Right. So, well, and all those people who've supported you in the journey because it's not exactly. an easy thing to do what you've done. Yeah. So, my producer, when we were talking about doing this interview, said, "How did you guys meet?" And I realized I don't remember. We've just known each other for so long that I don't remember. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't Do you either. remember? I don't either. This is this happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. And it, you just and it happens, you know, it's a I feel like it's a good thing with the yeah. people that you really like. Yeah, I do too. Because it's some like of the people that you're iffy there. on, you know where you met them. Uh-huh. Yeah, people who are weird. I'm like, oh, I remember that night and I got stuck in the corner talking to you. Yeah. But no, I I I literally was preparing for this thinking, I have no idea. When or where Scott and I met? That's so weird. We've been we've been it's camping in Ethiopia was, together, right. and I don't know where we met. That's right. But sometimes well, it's, a, it's a small group of people that typically mm-hmm. come out of the gate caring about the world. So right, it's a it's funny when when you started making your impact when I started Charity Water. There wasn't even this term social entrepreneur. Mm. I mean, it was just. Like, I don't know, I don't know when that term started. Maybe it feels like it's kind of five years old and now it's, you know, well adopted. Oh, social entrepreneurship and right. Stanford's got classes. and Yeah. Back in the day, they just called us philanthropists or crazy people. Right. Yeah. Or, oh, they start, they're, they're cute little charity. Oh yeah. They're oh, they're the charity, charity thing. The charity cute. thing. You know, it's funny. <laughs> I, um, I, I get stopped every once in a while in airports now and in the most awkward way. And I really get stopped in African airports. Because I feel like, you know, there's, I'm like the white dude, you know, with the away suitcase coming down Nairobi airport or Addis airport and all the other aid workers are like, that's, and they just look at me and they say, water or water guy. They don't know my name. They don't know the organization's name often. It's just w- w- water. Like they, po- it's weird. People point to me and just say water. Yeah. And then they move on. <laughs> that's pretty cool. People point at me and call me other people's names. So I think <laughs> having someone point at you and and tell you the thing that you're helping to change in the world is pretty but great. I, sure, the idea of <laughs> you know of 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 being known for some sort of cause or work, I feel like there's been a it, it's it's better since we started. There's so much more energy. So many more young yeah. people are getting into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, people write me letters about their cause uh, mm. or the thing that they see in the world that isn't right on their watch and yeah. I don't remember that as much in, you know, 12 or 13 years ago. Right. And do you think that social media has something to do with that? Because the exposure really, we've been able to take people on these trips. We've been able to show people how a well is built. You know, there, there is a touch point. It's not an idea or a thing you read an article about. It's really a thing you get to witness. Yeah. And I think in addition to witnessing the, the change and the work, People also are witnessing the places that you're going. They're feeling more attached and they're feeling like they could go there too. Yeah, there there absolutely is a, a connectedness. I mean, Charity Water would not be what it is without social media. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were the first 
charity to kind of hit it on Twitter. And I remember, remember this thing we did called the Twestival, which sounds so silly now, but <laughs> Twitter users in the first, in the first year of Twitter self-organized across 50 or 60 cities and raised hundreds of thousands of dollars, but then they could actually see where that money went. And I remember we said, all right, we've got all these Twitter users. We have all these organizers. Let's take all the money and let's do a live drill via satellite. So everybody could log on and see you know, the first well of many being built. Mm. And it was pretty cool being in a remote village in Ethiopia with a little BGN satellite unit, yeah. no bandwidth and broadcasting what everybody had done, the, the collective, wow. uh, almost instant gratification, maybe on the, on the negative side, but really on the positive side, this is what your money did. Your mm. money is at work. It didn't disappear into the ether. It's not in some huge bureaucratic void. Mm. Your money is helping these people in this village. Right now. So social media technology has allowed us to maybe build community in a more visual way mm-hmm. than, I mean, what, what, would you, what, what would have been the past alternative? Direct mail? Yeah. Right? People would send money and you'd go and you'd do something and then you would send them a letter. Yeah, a letter and, and a photo. Three months later. You know, there, yeah. wouldn't have, there wouldn't be an immediacy to it. So yeah. we have tried to use it every way that we, we can. I mean, just at the very beginning when we started, uh, Tr- Tr- this dates us, but Charity Water and Google Earth and Google Maps started around the same time. Mm. So, I mean, there was no Google Maps 15 years ago. Yeah. God, isn't and, that crazy? Isn't that crazy? And, and we realized that Google was building a free place where we could geolocate every water point. So mm-hmm. if we had a thousand wells, we could put a thousand satellite images up and pictures of the wells and then just build this hyper-transparent connected organization where yeah. hopefully people could always see where their money was going and feel like it had reached the people that they were trying to help in the first place. So we're on philanthropy and being a social entrepreneur and tech and innovation, but I want to roll it back for a minute because I'm always so curious when I sit across from people here who are so impressive, who are friends, who are people I admire. I wonder if you can tell me about who you were when you were little, because I know I know you as my friend who lives in service and is insanely sharp and you're able to observe a lot of things at the same time. And were you this observational as a little kid? It's interesting. I think as a little kid, I was also in service, although maybe thrust into it a little more. So when I was four, there was a bad accident in our family and there was a carbon monoxide gas leak Mm -hmm. that almost killed my whole family. It took my mom's health out irreparably. So, Mm She went from being this vibrant mother, journalist, uh, you know, wife that would fly around the world adventuring with my father to just a, a person whose body and immune system is shut down, who was allergic to the world, who was living in a, mm. uh, a small room with oxygen tanks and just weird health stuff. So not wanting to, I guess, at four, it's like, okay, now your mom is sick. Now it's, you have a new role in life. Go take care of your mom. So in some ways, I became a caregiver really early on. And I was the good kid. I had deep empathy and compassion. I wanted to be a doctor so that I could grow up and help heal mom Mm -hmm. and then help other people, other sick people like her. And religion was a huge part of my life. My parents were, 
I guess you'd call it non-denominational Christians. So they, mm -hmm. their faith was a big part of getting them through this terrible tragedy. And uh, I watched, my parents taught me so much about spirituality and morality and staying together as a family and optimism. So I was, I was a little entrepreneur as a kid. I remember saving money to buy a leaf blower and then selling my leaf blowing services up and down the neighborhood. Uh, you know, I was growing up in Jersey, so really unremarkable, you know, kind of sort of rural area, very middle-class family. Mm -hmm. You know, my parents probably lived on 50 grand a year, you know, would, uh, would never buy nice things. Uh, my dad to this day, uh, he just visited me in New York last week and he's had the same winter jacket which he should not be wearing in summer, but it's, it's, it's got duct tape all over it. So this jacket is 15 or 20 years old and it's just patched up. I mean, the You're stuffing like is coming out. Yeah. So that was kind of, that was the ethos of the family was yeah. uh, we never throw anything away. They were very generous. So they would always give to help people in the community. And then at 18, I just lost the plot for a little while. Mm. So when, when you say that, you know, you talk about your whole life changing at four, you know, you were still a baby and it's amazing the way you talk about your parents' resilience and the way that they taught you about staying together as a family and, and faith and commitment and all of those things. But I wonder if a little bit of losing the plot is just the pendulum swinging in the other direction of like this, this early sort of forced responsibility and, and growing up fast to yep. like, I want to, I want to be a kid in a way. I, I want to so. be I irresponsible. Like, I want to have a good time. It felt like it was my turn. You know, mm. now it's my turn. 18 mm. years old. Okay. That was their turn. Yeah. Played by the rules. Didn't smoke, didn't drink, didn't have sex, like played by the church rules, played by the family rules, helped to take care of mom. Now it's my turn. <laughs> And New York City was only an hour away. Right. And almost everything for the next 10 years in my life, every behavior was an act of rebellion in some way. And maybe fun exploration in the other. Like, let's have sex with a lot of people. Let's smoke. Let's drink. Let's party. Let me try and make money. Let me try and buy the watch That's and see how that feels and looks on me. Let me drive the BMW. Let me, you know, chase fashion week around the world. Let me work at 40 clubs. Let me get drunk. Let me try Coke. Let me try X. Let me try MDMA. Like, let me gamble. Like all of those things. It, it was, it was almost like the, uh, you know, the proverbial frog in the pot that it started with one thing and then the second and the third. And then 10 years later, you know, I had picked up almost all these vices and unfortunately they had stuck. There's lots of people that try things like, oh, wow, that's terrible. You know, wow, I have a hangover. I hated that. Or, oh, wow, that drug made me feel terrible. Unfortunately, way too many of these things stuck to me. Mm. So 10 years later, they had this compound effect of, I just remember so much self-hatred, so much self-loathing, you know, probably some shame because I had just come far from the safe morality and the spirituality of, you know, my upbringing. I had, mm. The innocence was lost. Right. And... And your experimentation, to your point, wasn't just experimentation. It it really lasted and took a toll on you. Yeah. I mean, I just, I'm 44 now. I just had a lung scan 
And my doctor was like, dude, you did 20 pack years. I didn't even know that that was a thing, but apparently when you smoke two packs of Marlboro Reds a day for 10 years, that's 20 pack years. And thank God my lungs were fine because I quit early enough, I guess, to, to have them regenerate. But, you know, yeah, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to just smoke for a couple months and try that out. It's like right. everything I did, I seemed to do to excess. Mm. I don't know if that's a personality thing or, or maybe it was just you know, wanting to, to take play everything out to the nth degree. So yeah, I mean, for those people that don't know the story, I, I became a nightclub promoter and worked at 40 different nightclubs selling thousand dollar bottles of champagne and $400 bottles of vodka that cost us 30 bucks. And the whole uh, idea of going to dinner at 12 or going to dinner at 10 and the nightclub at 12 and mm-hmm. after hours at four felt so uh, rebellious, so alluring. It felt intoxicating for mm-hmm. a while. And then one day you wake up and you realize that it is the, the, the mystique uh, has long worn off. Right. And well, isn't it interesting when you realize it isn't intoxicating, you were just intoxicated. Right. It's like nothing is grosser than a club when the lights come on. That's so true. You know? And it's sticky and it's just, you see the stuffing popping out of the banquettes. And you realize everything that looks sexy in the dark or in the movie is just not. I will never forget when I first started. I was 21 when I moved to North Carolina for my first show. And I don't remember if it was the first or the second season. It was early. We had to shoot Bachelorette Party at a strip club. (laughs) But we were in a strip club during, during the, day. the day. During the day. Oh, wow. And I was horrified. Because, like, I've been in nightclubs. We've been in some of the same nightclubs. Yep. They keep the lights real dim. Yeah, and it looks sexy. And then we were in this place, and it was the grossest, scariest, saddest. And I was like, oh, this is a real moment. And we mm-hmm. had to work in there for, like... 15 hours and it was anyway that's not the point of the story but i just you're telling me this and yeah. i'm like oh my god it's like when well, I we saw, saw it, those moments when we i saw would it during the day four in the morning 401 the lights would come on Oof. and yeah it's it was rough there was a moment i wrote about this in the book that you know you have these moments of uh, epiphany or clarity and i remember being on houston street in new york and it was around noon And, you know, I'd gone through the sequence of dinner at 10 at the trendy restaurant with, Mm. you know, eight models from the modeling agency and a couple guys paying for the whole thing. Mm. Club at 12, after hours at four that had somehow run up to probably 11 where I walked into my buddies. And now it was 12 and it was time to sleep and then get up at 7 p.m. and do it all over again. I remember, first of all, it's bright at noon. So it was hard to sleep. This place didn't have solar blinds or anything. So I remember taking down comforters and trying to tape them to the window to sleep. And in this process, looking out on Houston Street at noon at very respectable people in suits going about their very healthy days at their lunch break. Mm. And just thinking like, what a degenerate I've become. I mean, this is not healthy. It's not like I'm a surgeon on a night shift, you know, Mm. that was doing some sort of noble work in the middle of the night. You know, I was out doing cocaine till noon. Like, what a disgusting, you know, wretch. Uh, Mm. So you have these moments where, you know, you know that at least I had these moments that I wanted to change, but then I felt stuck in this cycle of, well, this was my job. This is Mm. how I paid my rent. 
was I was actually good at it. I was pretty good at getting thousands of people drunk every week. Yeah, you were good at being the ringmaster. But you write in the book about feeling numb. And when you talk about yeah. how, because right now you're also talking about the way that you feel stuck. And I think so many people feel stuck in careers that don't make them happy or relationships that don't make them happy. And and the numbing is really the side effect and, and the way that you stay. And I'm curious, how do you, how do you at this point realize that that's what's happening to you? Yeah. Well, I actually went physically numb, <laughs> which probably doesn't surprise anybody from what I just described, but I uh, woke up so about 28 years old. So mm. I've been doing this for 10 years and half of my body go n- goes numb. And, you know, I, of course I think I'm dying immediately mm. of mm-hmm. some horrible disease. So mm-hmm. I go to uh, the, I get the MRI. That's fine. You know, the EKG, mm-hmm. that's fine. Blood tests. Nobody, nothing is wrong with me. I mean, mm-hmm. medically yet mm-hmm. through the three or four specialists. Yeah. That I except saw. it's like the greatest, your body's like, you're not listening to me. I've been giving you the signs. Okay. Now I'm going to do it literally. Cause that's I'm, what the body does. It knocks louder and louder and louder and louder for your attention. Yeah. And, and so what did they say? So, so I think there was something about being faced with mortality Mm. that was a real trigger for me because I was living this lifestyle. Like you were just, I was going to live forever. I mean, I would be going to passion parties forever and you know, there would be nicer cars and better vacations and Mm. uh, model girlfriends that were more successful and on more covers and like all the things that I was chasing, my apartment would get bigger. And, and then, you know, one day, well, what if you were diagnosed or what if you had a month to live or what if I had a brain tumor or something really serious? what's my legacy? What's my impact? Mm. What's my relationship like with my parents? What's my relationship like with God? I mean, it was, it was a real wake up call. It was the moment when the lights come on Mm -hmm. in the club and you're forced to look at that. So I, I wish I could say it was a quick process, but that, that led a new pattern of thinking of, I really need to get out. And I went straight from that moment. A couple weeks later, I went to New Year's. It was a New Year's Eve vacation. We went to South America, rented a giant compound with horses and servants waiting on us and magnums of Dom Perignon and a mega yacht attached to the place and like all the things that club promoters do for New Year's Eve. And that was another moment for me when I was, I realized over 10 or 14 days that not only was I not happy, so many of the other people in this opulent, decadent vacation were also not happy. Mm. It was like the veil was slowly starting to be lifted. And, you know, it was, it was like the, almost like a game of musical chairs where the music would have stopped plenty of times for 10 years. The lights would have come on for plenty of nights. And then there's that one time where you don't have a chair. Like I was the guy standing. I was the guy looking around um, unsettled, unseated. So it was the health issues. It was this vacation where I realized, wow, there's really never going to be enough. There'll never be enough girls. There'll never be enough cars. There'll never be enough. Someone is always going to have more. I am trapped in an endless pursuit of hedonism, of selfishness, of, you know, of self. And this will lead me to ruin. And in fact, it has led other people to ruin. Mm. And I remember there were a couple people, uh, very, very wealthy in their 60s, dating 18-year-old models, younger than their daughters. You know, just there was so much wreckage with this pursuit of more, of hedonism. 
So I resolved that I was going to get out, and then it took me a few more months. So it was probably nine months. And what's going on with the numb side of the body? Like, it just slowly started going away. Okay. Maybe as you started. But not really as, I mean, I started trying to ease off the stuff, yeah. but I was still smoking and I was still drinking yeah. and it was so hard to get rid of that stuff. I mean, mm. it was, it was really on me. Well, they make it to do that to yeah. you, you know, yeah. I, I think, I think sometimes we need to cut our little human selves a break because it's marketed to you, it's sold to you, it's packaged to you, it's engineered by food scientists to taste away and to be it. It's, they want us to want it all the time. Yeah. You know, I, I think the waking up to that and figuring out how to change the pattern is an amazing thing. Yeah. And for me, I, I eventually just went cold turkey. But, you know, in the, in the summer of that year, so let's say October, I go numb, you know, January is this New Year's Eve vacation, the summer of that year. And I come back and I'm trying to find my way out, but I just felt so stuck. I'm a nightclub promoter. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. You know, we, we talked about this earlier. I had a journalism degree, but I'd never written. So no one's going to hire me to do anything. But yet, like we made pretty good money getting drunk for a living, getting our friends drunk. So it's not, it wasn't an easy jump to a marketing agency or anything like that. And you know, there was in the summer, there was this incident that I write about at the book where I fired a bouncer and this guy came after me and I had this moment where I just left New York for a couple of weeks and took stock of my life, the career that I was in, the unhealthy lifestyle. I was with a girlfriend I didn't love and like, it wasn't fair to either of us to be in this relationship. Like everything was just wrong. And I asked myself this question, what would the opposite of my life look like? And as radical as I had gone as the prodigal, and it's funny because in, 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 with a lot of uh, retrospection, I really feel like the prodigal son. I gave my family the finger. I said, I want my inheritance now and I'm gonna go so far from home. I'm gonna go across the world and I'm gonna squander it all. And then I really wound up in that, you know, proverbial pig pen moment saying, well, that didn't work. And I feel <laughs> terrible. And I want to go, I miss home. I want to yeah. come home. I want to come back to faith. I want to come back to morality. I want to come back to uh, a place where I was in service to my mom and to others where I cared, where I wanted to be the doctor mm. that would help her and help others. So uh, I asked myself this question, what would the opposite of my life look like? And I just remember thinking, what if I did one year of humanitarian service, almost as a penance, as a way of saying sorry for the 10 years that I'd selfishly wasted, and you know, see where that would take me. Could I be of any use? Did I have anything to offer? Mm. And maybe it was different enough that I thought, well, if I don't want to get paid, maybe that opens up my options. So it turned out that this was really difficult. I wind up applying to the Red Cross and the Salvation Army and World Vision and all these big organizations. Of course, nobody would take me because I'm some club rat and they're serious humanitarians. And then fortunately for me, one organization said, we've got this position for a photojournalist. You got to pay us $500 a month if you want it. And you have to go live in the poorest country in the world that just escaped a decade and a half war called Liberia. Do you want it? I'm like, oh, yes, I want it. This is the exact opposite. Pay you? Go to the poorest country in the world for a year? I'm in. And then everything changed. It was a really 
dramatic moment. I quit everything in one night. I smoked three pack of cigarettes and then threw them out and never had another drag. I never gambled again. I never touched Coke or any of that stuff again. I never, I mean, I haven't looked at a pornographic image in 15 years, which was its own problem for me back then. Like I just walked away from all the vice. Mm. And there was something about, I was actually, the mission took place on a hospital ship. So there was something so symbolic about walking up a gangway, getting onto a 500 foot vessel and sailing away to a new continent and to a new life and leaving all of that junk on land. Mm. So that was, I, I had the clean break and it did start a very different adventure, a different path for my life. And it turned out I was slightly useful. <laughs> How was it, how did you feel qualified like to go in and say, yeah, I can be a photojournalist? Were you just thinking I'll do whatever it takes and I'll, I'll study the kinds of imagery they need or how, how in the technical, cause we're in the big sure. sort of ideological and inspirational space, but like you had to go be a photojournalist. Yeah, I love how that question. How did you do that? I love that question. Well, going back to childhood, I think, so I was an only child. Mm -hmm. I'm married to an only child also. I think there is a sense of confidence. I was needed growing up. So mm -hmm. there was maybe even an overconfidence some, sometimes. Mm -hmm. I had these little tiny entrepreneurial businesses selling Christmas cards or leaf blowing or mowing lawns or whatever. That bled through to the clubs. I mean, I was the guy on the top of the DJ booth with the bottle of Cristal spraying it over the crowd, mm -hmm. you know, saying, look, like, this is what we've built. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's our party. So the technical was actually the hardest thing because I shot film and this was around the move to digital which turned out actually to be the greatest blessing. So I was given two Nikon D1X cameras. And I just, I mean, the beauty of digital is you could just make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. So you could take a hundred bad pictures to get one good one. So right. I'm just on the fly in Liberia, learning how to work a digital SLR, um, learning how to light all this stuff. I was a much better writer than a photographer. Mm. You know, I'd been writing for this. Uh, the local newspaper when I was 14 or 15. So the words came easier to me in a way than the images. But over the decade of clubs, I'd always had a, you know, a DSLR and always had taken pretty good pictures. So I think what I learned immediately was there were a lot of these skills were portable, the same skills that could get a thousand people excited about queuing outside a velvet rope to hear a DJ or to come in for a theme party could be used to highlight humanitarian work. Mm. And the cool thing so was that, that I had gone to, in a moment, I go from 10 years of clubs and a 15,000 person email list. Now remember 13 years ago, email open rates were like a hundred percent. Yeah, Everybody opened your emails because it was like Lycos, Hotbots, you know, yeah. Excite, Yahoo. This was the, the early internet or 15 years ago when I got on the ship. And I immediately just start telling stories and sharing the images of what I was seeing, mm -hmm. you know, almost where we started in this connected age of social media. So I mean, people talk about this today. They went from getting invited to, I don't know, a, a party at the Gucci store in Soho, New York, or, you know, the Prada store opening three weeks later, I'm in Africa sending the same list pictures of leprosy or facial tumors or of, children with cleft lips and cleft palates, but to the same people. 
yeah. that we're buying the bottles. We're buying the $20 cocktails. And so I was so lucky to have a base of like a little bit of community that knew me for something so completely different. And I think just the curiosity of it, it's like, wait, we were just doing lines with Scott three weeks ago, you know, at some club. He's in Liberia. Where is Liberia? What yeah. is, he's a photo. Oh, come on. I mean, I remember people writing and saying, are you doing this to get girls, bro? Like, are you trying to be a humanitarian to, so, you know, they didn't know anything about the inner life or, mm-hmm. So the response that I got, the response that I got immediately, uh, I was just sharing what I was seeing and how I was feeling. And I remember just crying through so many days, seeing, I mean, seeing suffering to a degree that I had never, Liberia at that moment had just finished a 14 year civil war. There was a breakdown in all, everything, all infrastructure. There was no electricity in the country. There was no running water anywhere in the country. There was no sewage running in the country. And the medical system had broken down to such a degree that there was one doctor for every 50,000 people. Oh, my God. There were, there were two surgeons apparently in the country but nowhere to operate. So, you know, imagine the very bottom of the UN development chart. This country had fallen off. There was no data because of the war. And, you know, we go there with a group of doctors saying, hey, we're here. We can help. Uh, to pick up the pieces. So the stuff that I was seeing was in such extremis. And I'm just sharing this with the club people. And I was really surprised that they seemed to care. Mm -hmm. And people would say, how do I give money? How do I sponsor a surgery? How do I join the ship? Can I wash the sheets on the ship? Can I work Mm -hmm. in the kitchen? I mean, I was surprised that the interest in people, there was this uh, this sense of longing, maybe people mm-hmm. who also felt numb in their jobs in fashion or at Goldman Sachs or, mm-hmm. you know, wherever they were uh, at MTV at the time, you mm-hmm. know, saying, I want to be a part of this. I think so many people long to give and long to serve community and don't have a way to do that. There's not a lot in the in the big working capitalist world of direction for how you can do that. Yeah. And I think, you know, now it seems like there is again, you know, you open Instagram and you can figure it out. But when we all started in these spaces, nobody knew. It was really like, you know, I think about building Pencils of Promise schools and like me and Adam and a crew of people being in Laos, like on scooters trying to figure out. I mean, we were kids. You know, and, and it's it's a very wild thing to think you were you were on the precipice of access to service changing. And so I'm having this moment where I'm thinking like, holy shit, you were really giving people their first window into more than a mailer they might have gotten or like a sponsor a family commercial that ran at odd hours on odd channels. Yeah, You know, it, it, it must have been really profound for people to see that. And in some ways it was, it was a, they were, it was a window into double transformation because they were seeing me change. The kid who mm. was the obnoxious club rat actually care. Mm. Uh, and then they were seeing these stories of transformation led by the doctors and surgeons. Mm. I mean, I was telling stories of women in their twenties who were blind with cataracts and then through a 20 minute surgery can see. And I mean, so these, these are, these stories had happy endings. Yeah, they I were mean, big. 
and they were there was a before and there was an after. So I think there was a before and after at this point in for me personally. Mm-hmm. But then I got to share thousands of before and afters uh, of of people whose life was impacted because of the doctors and the surgeons and the nurses and the 300 people on that ship who had volunteered their time. And when you're talking about getting there, you know, and you say that there were just days where you, you'd lose it. Did it take a minute to have access to that emotional well again, since you'd been in a place where you were operating outside of it or was what you to unnumb? Yeah. What was, was what you were witnessing just so big that you, that there was no way for the wall to stay up. Uh, it was the latter. It was the latter. And in mm-hmm. some ways I was really, you know, broken as a, as a person. I mean, I was very humbled. I remember praying a lot. I remember just, you know, trying to make sure I stayed on this new path. So really opening myself up to it. I wanted to feel, mm-hmm. maybe that's the way to say it. I realized that I maybe hadn't let myself feel for so many years to the point of numbness. Mm-hmm quitting the vice, you know, making this commitment to serve others, at least for a year, I really wanted to embrace it. I wanted to go on. And, you know, this is a theme. I'm a pretty extreme person. It's mm-hmm. much easier for me to, I mean, I, I can go from 40 cigarettes a day to zero, a lot easier than, you know, 40 to 35 to 30 to 25 to 20. Right. Uh, so I, I loved it. I embraced it. I remember, <laughs> I remember feeling sorry for myself the first kind of week or two because I was living. So I went from a pretty nice apartment in New York city, a, a loft and you know, it was a piano in the apartment and a great sound system. And um, it was just, it was a cool place to 125 square foot cabin with two roommates. Okay. I mean, New York, San Fran, LA, we all know small living, 125 square feet. It's 12 square meters. Wow. Uh, and I had two roommates that I'd never met who worked in the engine room and, you know, this country, was, the ship was 50 years old. There were cockroaches. I and mean, this was not a carnival cruise line, okay? Mm. The food was pretty disgusting. And I remember just thinking, oh, wow, I'm really slumming it. And then getting off the ship and seeing how people were living in this war-torn country and just almost feeling ashamed and saying, mm. wow, I've got it so good. Mm. I've got it so good. It's so relative. And I mean, it was an inspiring place to be. I, I met, uh, I, I found a mentor early on. I think that was a big part of, uh, of the story. You know, there was this, this guy I met, Dr. Gary Parker. And like me, he had thrown his hat in the ring for a short period of time. He was a surgeon in California on his way to be, you know, probably one of the top plastic surgeons. And he heard about this ship where he could operate and help out for a couple months. So he signed up for three months and when I walked up the gangway of the ship and met him, he'd been there over 20 years. Wow. Left his practice altogether. He fell so in love with the work, with a life of service. Um, now he's been there over 35 years. Wow. And I, I wanted that. I mean, that was, if, if maybe I wanted to be the king of New York or, you know, the people who owned Tao, you know, <laughs> back then or the version of that, I wanted to be the doctor who spent 35 years using his skills to heal thousands and thousands of people. Mm. So I latched on to him. I tried to spend as much time with him uh, as possible. And I kind of had, you know, my mentor, my guide in this, in this new life. And as a photojournalist, were you able to go in and watch and photograph surgeries? Oh yeah. Eight hour surgeries. 
Wow. So if I was like, I took 50,000 photos that first year, 40,000 were probably blurry. <laughs> so I was trying to figure out the camera, but it was, it was incredible watching. I mean, I'd be in the operating theater for eight or nine hours, just standing next to the doctors, talking with Dr. Parker. He'd be talking me through the surgery. I mean, I learned so much. And for some reason, I just wasn't grossed out. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I mean, seeing a face opened like, like, like in two um, and then put back together, I just found fascinating, the skill, the anatomy. I mean, yeah. what are some of the things that you saw that really stand out? Like, as we're talking about it, there yeah. are surgeries flashing in your brain. What are they? There was one guy I remember, his name was Alexander, and he had some sort of flesh-eating disease, and his whole face had rotted away, where you could see holes through the cheeks to the back of the mouth and the throat. The nose had rotted away, and he smelled. It was it was the smell of rotting flesh. I'd never, and I had to photograph him as close as you and I are sitting, even closer, uh, with a wide-angle lens to document. I was my, One of my jobs or roles on the ship was to document every patient pre-op, pre-operation, and then post-op to show this transformation. And the organization would use that for fundraising purposes and to to uh, really just to document for medical purposes mm-hmm. the pre- and post-op. So I remember Alex taking his, his pre-op and just the stench was like, I, I'd never smelled rotting flesh you know, 24 inches from me before. And what he needed was they, I remember it was a series of surgeries to basically scrape it all off and just start taking parts of his arm, the back of his head, um, part of his side and putting his side on his face and the back of his head on his face, grafting. And his arm on his face, all this grafting from wow. this amazing burn surgeon, a guy named Dr. Tertius Venture. And the whole process just was fantastic. But of course he'd been an outcast because his face was rotting and he smelled. And I, I remember uh, this one of the, I read about Alfred in the book, this 14 year old boy uh, who had a, a tumor the size of a volleyball. I've seen that. And photo. I mean, it was just shocking stuff. And, you know, you feel, I almost felt like I was violating him by taking his photo. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, his eyes were so angry, he was scared, you know, it had taken out half of his teeth he was suffocating to death in his own face. And I'm watching a 14 year old boy suffocate to death in front of me, you know, maybe with weeks or maybe a couple months to live as this tumor had grown slowly. And then, you know, documenting this eight hour surgery, waking up with him in the recovery room, you know, with my camera kind of documenting those first moments and the patients would wake up and they would start feeling for the tumor and the tumor was gone. Mm. So they'd be touching the air you know, feeling around their tumor in this kind of morphine state uh, post-op. And it was just extraordinary. I mean, their eyes would widen. It was the most extraordinary thing. And specifically with Alfred, you know, I, I think he was my first friend. My first African friend was this 14-year-old little boy. And I got to take him home a few weeks later to his village mm-hmm. and watch this huge celebration, this ceremony where hundreds of people in the village surrounded him as he jumped out of the Land Rover and they were touching him and they were touching his face. And, Mm. you know, this is the village outcast that had been written off for dead. I later learned that they had sent him to witch doctors and they had cut him with sticks and knives and spread chicken paste and, you know, all sorts of things because they didn't have access to surgeons. Mm -hmm. And just watching him heal, uh, you know, now it's 15 years later. Um, I just got a picture of him from a couple weeks ago and he's got a plumbing business and he's, he looks great. He's a handsome looking dude. Mm. 
And there were so many of those stories. So I was sharing those stories with this really naive, I'm asking the doctors the most basic questions and then I'm writing these stories and I'm sending you on my club list 16 photos of the whole process. Him from the front, him from the side, you know, him in the village, him in the operating theater, the first cut of the knife. You know, if, if you wanted it, his face wide open and then the doctor's putting him back together and then him back in the village and then him three months later, you know, almost completely healed. Wow. And it was just, it felt like an honor to be able to do it. Yeah. Well, so, so I loved it. I was all in. When you get to be a witness in a real way. Yeah. It's incredibly transformational. Yeah. I, I have had in different circumstances moments where I go, oh, this is what humanity is. This is what we're here for, is mm-hmm. to do this together. Yeah. And you did it in such an incredible, extreme, amazing way. And the immersion was helpful. You know, yeah. a bunch of people ask me, you know, well, I want to, what do you think really got you out? I think I changed my, I not only changed my circumstance, I changed the community so quickly. Mm. So for me to be able to extricate myself from all of that vice, one, I changed my conduct. So I was not hanging out with club people who were doing Coke every night Mm -hmm. and sleeping around. I was hanging out with a bunch of Christian doctors and nurses, you know, who had left their families or had, uh, they were, they were sacrificing money to use their skills for good. Mm -hmm. So the whole context changed. I mean, it wasn't cool to smoke. It wouldn't have been cool to drink. It was, it was cool to serve others. So that really helped me, I think. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, what's the healthier community? Being around a couple hundred people who are trying to selflessly lay down their lives for others and use mm-hmm. their position of privilege to, to benefit others. So I did a year there. And then in the second year, I just came across the water crisis. I really stumbled across it because what even though mean? we were this... When, when you say you did a year there and then the second year... Yeah, I went back. You, so you I didn't know what was next. So, so I just said, home? hey, can I come back for another year? Got it. So you and left and then you went back. I went back for a few months. So the ship would do an eight or nine month tour. Mm-hmm. And then they would sail uh, from West Africa down to South Africa. They would bring the ship up. They would rehaul it. They would kind of uh, maintain it. And then they would sail it back in. So I said, well, sailing to Cape Town, you know, sounds nice, but I could be more useful than that. Why don't I take the 50,000 photos that I've taken, sort through them and try and put on an exhibition in Chelsea, New York, mm-hmm in a gallery and see if I can use that exhibition to raise money. I'm obviously not going to sell photos of giant facial tumors or of leprosy or of flesh eating disease, but maybe I could take the stories, the incredible stories of these people and invite all my club friends to hear about it in person, to see them in the, in the flesh and then raise as much money as I could and then go back on the ship a couple months later. Mm -hmm. So I wound up doing that. Uh, raised about $100,000 through the exhibition, gave 100% of that money to Mercy Ships. And then I went back to Liberia for a second time. And then I was just fortunate to spend more and more time in the rural areas and the remote communities and see the water that people were drinking. And, and how were you getting off the ship? Again, just a logistical a question for listeners. So you, you brought a motorcycle on no, the I ship. No, I bought one in Africa. Amazing. But you brought it on the ship. Uh, yes, we would dock. So it would be down right. at the dock, like chained up. Yeah. yeah the bottom of the gangway. And then, I bought a $600, uh, I think it was a Honda 500 uh, motorcycle. So I had it in Benin and then Liberia. So I had this freedom mm. uh, to just travel around, you know, when I wasn't working and I would go and find stories in the rural areas and I would travel around the country. I spent time in a leprosy clinic just for fun because I met these amazing nuns that had been working, 
you know, with four or 500 people who had leprosy, you know, in the border of Guinea and Ivory Coast. So I would drive up five hours and I would just spend time there. And learn people's So I learned about water. Take photos and, yeah, and I would the take water photos crisis and... becomes so, so I guess the, the link for me was uh, when you see people drink dirty water. Yeah. I, so I was showing the pictures to Dr. Gary and some of the surgeons, like in the most naive way, like, hey, guys, I just got back from Ganta up country. Do you see the water that people are drinking? They're drinking from swamps. Look at this. And then, of course, the doctors and surgeons are saying, yeah, we know. This is why half of the people are sick in the world. You know, waterborne disease. There's 26 waterborne diseases that they could rattle off. And mm-hmm. um, so I started learning about the link between unsafe water, contaminated dirty water, and the at the time, one billion people on the planet without it, and some of the diseases we were seeing. Mm-hmm. Flesh-eating disease, trachoma is water. Mm-hmm. There's so many of these diseases. So uh, Mercy Ships had a little bit of money allocated for a well drawer, and he would go out and do like five or six wells a year. So as my job in photojournalist, I made friends with him and I would go out in the villages. So I watched him solve the problem. I watched him take these communities where hundreds of people were drinking disgusting, green, brown, viscous water that I wouldn't let my dog drink. And then I watched him find the clean groundwater underneath their villages and transform. So imagine that everything is about before and after, before and after. So mm-hmm. I've got the before and afters going on with the surgeries. Blind people are seeing, tumors are being removed faces are being put back together. And then there's this guy off to the side that is before and aftering 300 people at a time yeah. through clean water by f- tapping it in, and, and at a fraction of the cost of these expensive surgeries. So I just really stumbled into water by way of health, by way of, well, maybe this is the, the root cause of so much of this sickness and the, I mean, 5,000 people, Sophia would turn up to see our doctors at our patient triages and we could only help 1500 people. So we were sending thousands of people who needed our help just because we didn't have enough doctors. We didn't have enough surgery slots. We had a couple operating theaters, only 40 beds on the hospital ship ward. Mm. So I thought, you know, if I really wanted to make an impact in health, what if I took water on and try to make sure that 5,000 people didn't come to our patient screening if, if the country had clean water. Mm-hmm. So that was really the exploration the second year was finding my issue. Uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Gary had his issue. 20 years of using his hands as a surgeon, and that was his lane. And he really encouraged me. He said, you know, why don't you make water your issue and see what kind of impact you can make? And so where'd you start? Well, I came back as a very broke, idealistic 30-something, you know, minus the vices. So my friends thought I was boring. And I had this, I was armed with this laptop. And I would go out to the clubs because those are the people that I knew. And I would open up the laptop in a DJ booth at midnight. And I would start showing pictures of leprosy or people drinking dirty water. I remember getting kicked out of DJ booths, like the club owner saying, bro, you, you can't kill people's buzz like this. Like you, you got, you got to knock it off with the laptop and the photos. But I was just running around, you know, as a photojournalist, almost with my portfolio and saying, I'm going to start this charity. We're going to bring clean drinking water to every single person on the world. It's crazy that a billion people don't have water. I mean, at the clubs, I was selling Voss for $10 a bottle. Right. People wouldn't even open the water. They would just order five bottles of sparkling, five bottles of still, let $100 of water sit there as they drank champagne or vodka. So, you know, I was on fire. There was a, you used used such a a great word, eyewitness. Like there was a, 
there was a responsibility and an authority because I didn't just drive by it. I hadn't gone on a missions trip for a week and painted an orphanage, you know, green or, you know, I don't know, pet the poor for, you know, a few days and taken a couple selfies. Mm. I'd like, I'd lived in Liberia. I mean, I had photographed thousands of patients before and after. Uh, I had, I'd really been in these villages. I'd, I'd put in the time and there was a responsibility to do something about, about what I'd seen. And people were asking me for help, saying, please go tell our story. Will you help bring clean water to our village? Mm. And I would make promises and I would try and deliver on them. So I had nowhere to live. I mean, in, in, just in the brass tacks of starting, I crashed with my old nightclub promoter partner. I'm living on a closet floor on Spring and Mercer above Von Dutch at the time uh, in Soho, New York. And he wasn't charging me rent because I was living on a floor. And he, he said, you know, you can use my couch in the living room to, to start your cute little charity that's going to, you know, help some people get water in Africa. Oh, that's so nice. You know, if you want to come back to the clubs, we're here, bro. You know, I, I need the help. Well, and I think all of this worked to my advantage that I didn't know what I was doing. I had this unbelievable naivete. Uh, my heart was on fire because I'd seen so much and I had to do something about it. And I knew a few people in clubs. So at least I had a few places to start. And I, I learned very quickly that most people don't trust charities. <laughs> and uh, I come across a USA Today poll that found 42% of Americans don't believe that charities are trustworthy. A more recent poll by NYU found that 70% of people in America think charities waste their money when they give money. So I, I was kind of doing this user testing informally in clubs and, you know, at restaurants and talking to people who worked at MTV or Chase Manhattan Bank or, you know, Gucci or whatever, and just finding that, wow, a lot of everyday people uh, are not giving and they are cynical and they are skeptical. So if the mission was water, could I also create a different business model? Could I, could I innovate? Mm. Could, I, could I make Charity Water speak to some of these objections and these cynics? And There's the young entrepreneur with the leaf blower. Yeah, so I, exactly. <laughs> or the, the guy trying to fill you know, nightclubs and uh, you know, theme them with a pool party and hire lifeguards to sit in the stands and buy 500 beach balls for the nightclub. You know? This was, hey, could I do something different? Could I win the 40 or the 70% of people who, like you said, who see the suffering around them, who look yeah. at the problems in the world and say, I do want to help, but I don't know where to start or I don't trust the system. Mm-hmm. So I came up with a couple crazy ideas and what if we gave away 100% of all the donations that we received from Charity Water and we only use them to build water projects and help people get clean water and somehow I would open up a separate bank account and I would raise the overhead money separately. Mm. I would go convince a few really wealthy people to help pay for an office and staff and so that all this money from the public could go to the projects and mm-hmm. Could we use technology, both social media and things like Google Maps and Google Earth to connect the public with where their $30 went mm-hmm. and show them the projects being built and people drinking clean water? Could we use cameras and social media and satellite connections? And, mm-hmm. and then just, I don't know, a flurry of activity, not all of it very strategic. There was no three or five year business plan. It was just a lot of stuff from events to PSAs to, I mean, I would make eight presentations a day and maybe one or two people would say, yes, I'll help. And six would say no, or, or maybe later. And you would take the one or two and you would go to the next day. And I don't know. It was just, there was a, I'm, I'm sure many people listening have been through this. You know, if you do, 
you put in the 80 and 100 hour weeks and you survive, the thing just starts to grow and gain momentum. Mm. And you're, so you're essentially in startup mode, but your startup, you're trying to do good with. You're trying to take the billion people who don't have access to clean water and lessen that number. And, and I believe that now we're at 663 yep. million Making people. progress. That's a lot of progress. I mean, you've... Yep. And the population has grown over those years. You've so. eradicated a third of the problem. The whole sector at large. The I mean, whole we've, sector. We've helped raise awareness and yes. we've, we've helped 10 million people raise about $400 million to do that. But it's incredible. a lot of energy and momentum. And I think, I think we've certainly helped with awareness. I mean, I know we have. We've yeah, I'm, you definitely... Helped at least I, elevate the conversation. But. Yes. And I'm curious... At this moment, I mean, you know, we're like day to day. <laughs> yeah. Which is crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. One of the things that I think is so odd is in this world where we're looking at, you know, the economy and we're looking at uh, these big companies IPOing and all of these things. I'm like, why is no one putting the money where it needs to go? You know, I don't have a problem trusting charities. I have a problem trusting bureaucracy because I, I look at the fact that we have $600 billion to surplus the military. And by the way, like that's not paying any of our men or women in uniform. Like that's paying defense contracts to companies who are doing weird things in the world. And I'm like, wait, so we have that money, but we don't have the money for schools and we have school lunch debt and like Flint can't get new pipes. What are we investing in? And so it is an interesting here's, thing here's, to here's sit one for people. and think so about it. You know, Americans, despite the charity fatigue, Americans are known as being very generous. Yes. How much of our giving, well, you probably know this, but how much of our giving goes overseas in the good neighbor category, right? So all the humanitarian aid, like that you think of all the needs in the world of, of all the money America gives, how much do you think goes overseas? All the money we donate to charity, yeah. not foreign aid, you yeah. know, policy. Well, right. How much of all of our giving is 4%. Wow. So... Four cents on every dollar goes. So 96% of all money stays here. Mm. So, you know, that's as we kind of, that's another thing I'm, I'm always just, and people think it's 20% or, you know, I've asked people, oh, half of our money must go overseas. It's like, mm -hmm. oh no, it goes to our universities and our colleges and, and, you know, often to donor advised funds that where the money just sits there. Wow. That's been one of the great frustrations is just learning of the billions and billions and billions that's been parked for tax efficient purposes Yes, to save someone, you know, on a, on a huge tax bill. And it's just sitting latent and, we and it could so be helping so many causes, not just ours, you know, it could yeah. be helping with the homelessness or helping with, with education or healthcare, education, all these things. Healthcare, and women, just, homelessness, veterans. So that's what we've been fighting to do is to, is to say, is to win back trust yeah. using hyper-transparency and, and try to win more generosity, more mm -hmm. compassion, more empathy. Yeah. For what, 12 and a half years now. And how do you talk about, because you talk so much about the transparency and the tech and, and the mission, but there is also such an environmental crisis at play here. And, you know, you talk about Liberia being at the end of a civil war, having no running water, no electricity in the country. People forget that that could happen anywhere. Yeah. They, f they forget. South Africa, Chennai now. Yes. You know, water is, uh, it was it ran on the cover of The Economist uh, recently. I mean, now it's an issue that people are waking up and saying, oh, wait, maybe I shouldn't take this thing for granted for mm -hmm. the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 
you know, you have a Flint, Michigan happen. You have, mm-hmm. you know, a Cape Town on the verge of running out, out of yes. water, some droughts in California. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the conversation has definitely been elevated. Yeah. You know, we're, we're kind of still screaming, like what it looks like in our context now for the 663 million people is women and girls walking six hours a day this. to get raped on their way to a swamp, mm-hmm. to get attacked by a hyena or a crocodile at the river. You know, it's the girls dropping out of school because their mm-hmm. school doesn't have any clean water or toilets. Mm-hmm. So we're still shouting emergency, you know, mm-hmm. in the developing world that, you know, that we're working in 27 countries now. Yeah. But I do think with the, the focus on the environment, I do think that the conversation is elevated. More people are talking about water now, certainly mm-hmm. than they were 12 years ago Yes, when we but started. I, I think it's so interesting that to your point in so many of the countries that you work in and so many of the countries where people are struggling around the world is that the, the, these problems of environmental crises affect women so intensely. Yes. They go hand in hand, the subjugation of and the violence against women. You saw this when goes, you came to Ethiopia with us. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, mm-hmm. uh, it is shocking, you know, in so many of these communities that it is it's just all the women getting the firewood, cooking, doing the cleaning, taking care mm-hmm. of the kids, walking for water. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the women that are so marginalized mm-hmm. by this. And I don't have the most updated stat, but a couple of years ago, uh, the stat was that 40 billion hours are wasted by women every year just getting water. Just in Africa, just in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, and if you add up that time, it's more than the entire global workforce of France. So you have you have you know a huge unrealized mm-hmm. economy of time that could mm-hmm. be productive, but is wasted mm-hmm. leaving their families, leaving their homes to yes. then go get water that's unhealthy. That's it's not even it's not even useful. And to be put at risk on the way to do it. And to be put at risk on the way of doing it. And it's so interesting. And, to me, because I think about the women who might be listening to this, and I think about the conversations that we're having in our communities and in our backyards and around our dinner tables about emotional labor and about how so much of that falls on the shoulders of women and about how so much unpaid labor falls on the shoulders of women. And if that enrages us in our communities, what these women are going through yeah. in these 27 sub-Sahara, sub-Saharan yeah. African countries and these places that you're talking well, it's about. India, it's Asia, it's Central everywhere. South America, yeah. Sorry, it's 27 countries yeah. you're talking about and, and all of these places in Sub-Saharan Africa. We should also be advocating for those women. I agree. It is so important for us to say, if I want my life to be better, how do I better the lives of others? If I'm going to open this door for myself, how do I open the door for others? And it's true. And the emotional hardship, you know, I'm so glad you asked that mm. or brought that up. There's a story I write about in the book about this 13-year-old girl. We talked about this at LA Live, I think. You know, so I've just, I've, I've heard so many of these crazy stories of women, you know, crocodile attacks and hyena attacks. And I gave birth by the river and I was raped in the bush on the way to, you know, I've heard these firsthand. I was with mm-hmm. a woman in Niger uh, standing next to this brown, viscous, disgusting water. And she tells me through a translator that she watched eight of her children die. And she lists their ages of, of death and then all their names, you know, and they was kind of from zero to 13 and two of them survived. And I was in Ethiopia once where we were together and heard the story of this, you know, I, I thought it was a legend at the time, this 13 year old girl who was walking for water. And one day she slipped and fell and she spilled her water. And instead of going back for water, she hung herself from a rope, uh, from a tree, cause she was just fed up, it was done. And, you know, I remember, you know, you hear these things and that story just disrupted me in such a way. I was like, that can't be true, right? Like 13 year old girls are not hanging themselves because they spilled their water. So I went to live in this village. I drove like 
20 hours to, to get there and drove and walked 20 hours to get there. And it's this little village called Maida. It was completely off the grid. And I learned that this was true. There was this, this girl named Ledikiros Hailu. She was 13 years old. She walked eight hours a day down a mountain to a little ravine. She got scummy water that seeped out of the rock. And one day after the eight hour walk with her clay pot, she didn't even have the yellow jerry can. She had a Mm. heavy clay pot. And before she makes it back to her house, she slips and falls. She watches her pot smash. She watches all the water spill. And she's like, that's it. She hangs herself from the tree right next to the path. And I... I, I remember, you know, I spent time with her mom and I spent time with the priest that buried her. And uh, my last day there, I saw the tree and I, I remember taking a picture of the tree where they found her body many years ago, swinging with a noose around her neck. I mean, imagine a 13 year old child no. who spilled her water after walking eight hours. Mm. And I asked her best friend, I said, you know, why do you think she... Like, why not just go home? Why not say, you know, whoops, mom, like spilled the water or why not go back for more water? And her friend said, shame. She said she would have been so filled with shame that she had let her family down because mm. now they would go without water and she'd broken a valuable asset. It's like crashing your parents' car, but without insurance. There's no insurance claim. Somebody would have to go buy a new clay pot, you know, and this is a family living on the margin and rather than face her family, her friend said, yeah, she would have taken her own life to punish herself. So, I mean, there, you know, there are these stories that I think bring home, you know, 663 million. Well, she was one of them. Yeah. She's not anymore because she's not alive. And it is. But there's an urgency. People, people forget know? that it's a life and death situation that we're talking about and, and dealing with here. Absolutely. And it's, it's the, you know, it's so many of these kids that, I mean, imagine, I'm sure there's moms listening. I've got two young kids myself. The kids are dying of diarrhea. So you're watching your child, you're dying of dehydration, which mm-hmm. is really what happens. So you give your child bad water, your child gets sick with dysentery, diarrhea, and then you don't have any, the only thing that cures our kids of dysentery is clean water, mm-hmm. hydration. So if you give your kid more bad water, your child keeps dies. happening. So you're, you know, you're a mom holding a, you know, one-year-old, a two-year-old. Once the kids hit five, they become a little more resilient. They're much less susceptible to death by bad water. But, you know, imagine, I mean, my kids get diarrhea all the time. I go to the Dwayne Reed, I buy the blue stuff, you know, and I hydrate them like crazy and I give them medicine. And, you know, I, I would never imagine a child dying of, of something so preventable. Right. But if I had to go to the Central Park Ponds, and give my kids clean water every day. It's about the walk. I live in Tribeca in New York City. So that would be similar to a walk that a lot of people are doing up to 57th Street and back mm-hmm. for dirty water. So it's, it's shocking. The good news is it's a solvable problem. We know how to help every human being alive get clean water. So and that's how do we fun, do that? We now have 11 different technologies. So we drill wells, we build rainwater harvesting systems, bio sand filters. I was in Rwanda two weeks ago. Uh, we're doing you know huge million dollar gravity fed systems of springs and pipes and mm-hmm. solar. And we we haven't created the will to do it yet. And it's great. We have our own goal now at the uh, at the UN. You know the SDG number six is access to clean water for all by 2030. Yes. Uh, we'll fall badly short of that if the trajectory continues. 
So we still need, uh, we need more money. We need more awareness. We need more people to care about mm -hmm. this. We need more people, I think, to connect to this for the complex issue it is, one that affects women and girls, one that affects health, one that affects education, one that affects livelihoods and, mm -hmm. and income generation. You're walking eight hours a day, seven days a week, because it's not five days a week. Yeah. You take the you weekends off. You got day. no water on the weekend. So it's a great issue to work on. We've made a lot of progress. We're now one out of every 10 people on the planet without water. When we started, it was one out of every six. So we're moving in the right direction, but we need to go faster. You know, we need to make sure that we need to reach more 13-year-old girls like Leta Kiros. Mm -hmm. So that's what keeps me on 70 flights a year these days. Mm. <laughs> there's a tie-in just sort of I'm curious in the way that you talk about the systems when I think about what I know of your life and what listeners are learning of your life with with your mom's experience with an environmental illness mm -hmm. and as you said you being a father you being a husband you look at all of these intergenerational relationships in your life and health is so meaningful to yes. you is that, do you think that's why this feels like it's in your DNA? It feels like such a calling to you? Yeah, I love the way you frame that, health. I think it's health on so many levels. I think mm -hmm. it's health when we can invite people to move the intention of their life from uh, often a soul focus on themselves mm -hmm. and the possessions that they can amass or the status that they can elevate themselves to in life or the next job or the promotion to care about others. I think that's, you know, I certainly found a real freedom that came in service when I focused on instead of serving myself for 10 years, I'm trying to use my gifts to serve others, mm. to be useful in the world. And then I think, yeah, the environment, I mean, there's, there's no greater thing that brings health than clean water. If you take that away, everything starts to deteriorate. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. My mom always had pure spring water. We would buy it from special places because she needed it. She needed the purest water um, mm -hmm. to keep her, you know, that was one of the things that her immune system needed. And yeah, I think, and that's the, that's what I love about the charity water community. You know, now well over a million people around the world have given $400 million and, you know, we're, we're at 9.9 .9 million people with clean water. So we're about to break through 10 million people just that, that our community has been able to help. And there's so many stories of people donating their birthdays or doing a birth campaign, you know, for a child that they're about to bring into the world who is always going to have clean water just because of the privilege that that middle-class child maybe was born into. Um, so seeing often this issue bring out the best in people mm -hmm. has been really, or move them to care about others has been really fun. And then we try and tell those stories. We try to promote that. So I'm still promoting, you know, what, 15 years after leaving the clubs, I'm promoting uh, hopefully a greater level of generosity and empathy and compassion. Mm. The idea that we can do more to use our time and our talent and our money to serve the needs around us in our local communities and mm. the global needs and hopefully find more purpose and health family health, emotional health yeah. in that, in how, that position shift. How do you maintain that for yourself and for your family? Because you're, 
you're looking at the world, you're looking at these big systems, you're looking at global health, you devote a lot of time, you travel a lot, you're in foreign countries a lot. How, how is it to be a husband and a father? How do you, how do you juggle all this stuff? Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I, I stay, I mean, gosh, I get sick sometimes out there eating the food and just the travel. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I've been to 69 countries now. I mean, I've been to Ethiopia 30 times. So I try and stay healthy on the road. I've got my own, you know, tricks for that. Of course, I've never had to drink dirty water. So I'm always bringing a filter or bottled water with me. I, I, you know, I think a lot about the kids now and, you know, I'm 44. So I've been at this for a while. I, I really have a clear vision that I'd like to help a hundred million people before I die. So I'd like to impact a hundred million people directly through the organization, through the community, through hopefully stewarding the community and, you know, leading the organization and continuing to grow it. So I'm kind of at 10% of that. Mm-hmm. And my son, who's about to turn five next week, just asked me the other day, and I, I live a few blocks from our office, and he's in the office all the time. And he says, Daddy, how old do I have to be before I can work with you at Charity Water and help people get clean water? So, you know, your heart melts, and I'm like, <laughs> now, okay? Here's, uh, you know, some, I don't know, go run this uh, to the front desk or whatever. Um, there, uh, So I think a lot about legacy and mm the family values and, you know, maybe health on a, on a more, maybe on a more spiritual level, you Mm -hmm. know, I want them to grow up. Uh, And so how do I keep, you know, I, I, I really try to not be corrupted by money and I try to just keep giving more money away. So, you know, my wife and I have donated personally, like over $200,000 to our own organization, you know, post-tax, I, I try to give to, 20, 25 causes a year. You know, we try and give at least 20% of our income every year away. I feel like I can't ask anyone else to do what I'm not willing to do. So there's just this, you know, my life is in a really interesting tension because I'll go from that village where I lived in a tent with a 13 year old girl that killed herself. And then I'll fly and stay in a $40 million mansion for, you know, a very generous donor. And, you know, it's a radical, and I'm flying coach between, I should say for the record, (laughs) we've, We've never bought a business class ticket for myself or for anyone else. So we take stewardship very, very seriously at the organization. We pay back credit card fees so that we can really say that 100% of all the money goes. Mm. Um, but I'm, I'm very careful to try not to be corrupted by money or this desire to you know, have the house in the Hamptons or the nice car. I mean, I drive a Kia Sorento and I love it. I think it's like the greatest car that I've ever had. And I don't need a Land Rover you know, for $50,000 more or a Porsche Cayenne or, you know, whatever the high end version, like, you know, my car has two car seats and there's lots of smushed raisins in the back seat. And, you know, like my wife dented it the other day and I didn't mind, (laughs) uh, you know, so there's, I, I think I'm just trying to make sure that I and my family stay grounded in reality, even though I've got these two extremes going Mm. on, which is radically poor people living on the margins and the edge and then billionaires. I mean, I spent a lot of time with billionaires and, you know, I've driven in Lamborghinis and Ferraris, you know, as someone takes me to the airport, mm. I've been on private planes um, as people offer me a lift and save charity water $220, you know, on the, the Delta on coach the Southwest fight, ticket, you know? right. So uh, I think it's just trying to stay grounded in reality and not, yeah. not get cynical, not mm. judge people mm-hmm. and just keep telling stories and hopefully winsomely invite more and more people to consider using what they have uh, to help others. Yeah. 
I have a, another question, and you, you said a couple of things about it. You know, your experience in Liberia being very different than a person who goes on, like, the week trip to yeah. paint something and take immersion. selfies with kids somewhere else. And we're having a lot of these conversations, and they're probably very long overdue, but we're talking about privilege, and we're talking about this very risky potential for white people who go on philanthropic tourism experiences, be they you know, religious missionary trips or volunteering trips that, that can really be rooted in this, whether it's conscious or a subconscious world of white saviorism yeah. and, and, and in tourism of human beings, experiential tourism, if you will, under the guise of philanthropy. And I'm curious because I, I think I look at a lot of that more in the way you do. We share a journalism degree and, you know, my father's a photographer and I think photojournalism, I, I know photojournalism to be one of the things that can change crisis zones and change yeah. public opinion. And I, I believe it to be very sacred, but on this other end of the spectrum, you know, selfies with other people's children and whatnot, mm -hmm. how do you, as a person who did the work, who became enmeshed in the community, who, who went to serve, in such a special place, how do you think we need to be cognizant of how we show up or why we might be motivated to do volunteer work and and how we need to weigh what we do at home versus what we think we should be doing abroad or maybe ask ourselves why it is we want to go abroad? How do we make sure that that's meaningful and that it isn't just a, a charity tourist trip? Wow, that's a great question. Let me step back just a second. Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons it's been easy for that not to be, we've never really been a part of that conversation at Charity Water is mm -hmm. because from day one, we believe that the local partners would need to be the ones that actually did the work. Mm -hmm. I think this was probably the same with pencils and yes. it was all locals, right? All so you'd have you and Adam always. saying, Hey, we can use our voice. Mm -hmm. We can use our network. We can um, raise you the could money. use your fans. You could use mm -hmm. you know the people that care about us to showcase the need. And then the great, needs being met by these very competent, skilled locals who are missing one very important thing, money. Money, yeah. So we now, you know, Charity Water has about 100 people in New York City, but we have 1,700 people around the world, locals that we support and pay their salaries. Mm -hmm. So I think that almost gave me the freedom early on. I said, okay, my role, I know my role here, I'm clear about it. It's to promote. It's to promote the needs and the solutions, and it's to invite people to be a part of that through mm -hmm. giving, hopefully even through radical generosity for some, mm -hmm. but to create local jobs and grow these organizations. So I was even clear about, you know, the, the credit. I mean, you know, we, where you came in Ethiopia, you met Tekluani Asefa. He's been at it for 40 years. Mm -hmm. He leads a team now of 1600 Ethiopians. There's no expats there. There's nobody that looks, you know, that has our skin color. It's mm -hmm. all an amazing team. There's eight drilling rigs now because we've been buying drilling rigs for them. And he's mm -hmm. been hiring the local hydrogeologists. Yeah. There's 350 some people just working on charity water projects mm -hmm. in this one region of Ethiopia. So that's so exciting to create local jobs. And when we go to Ethiopia, people don't know who we are. They know who our local partner is. Yeah. So it's the locals who are known and celebrated for the work. Mm -hmm. So I still kind of look at that role maybe more as the journalist or the promoter. Hey, how can I learn about the needs, mm -hmm. the local appropriate solutions to that? And then how do I just go get the resources to mm -hmm. allow that to happen yeah. and not plant the charity water flag in 27 countries, but to allow our local partners 
to plant the flag of development saying, hey, it's Ethiopians helping Ethiopians. Yeah. It's Rwandans that are building all the water projects in Rwanda. Yeah, um, and, and the, you allow charity water to be in service of their mission. Absolutely. To pay for their mission. And to highlight them. They are yeah. the heroes. I yeah. really look at one of my favorite books is um, uh, called Building, a, one of my favorite business books is called Building a Story Brand. Mm. Great guy named Don Miller out of Nashville. <laughs> and he speaks to this a little bit, but I leave, I believe our role is the guide. So mm. the heroes are the nine-year-old kids who are doing lemonade stands, 10 weekends in a row, raising money for charity water. The mm. heroes are our volunteers. The heroes are our local partners and the heroes are the beneficiaries mm. who are courageously struggling to make ends meet for their family, who are walking. The heroes are the women walking eight hours a day to provide that dirty water for their families. We're the guide. So we're just trying to take people and just be you know, a great steward of that money turn into as much impact as possible. So I think maybe to more directly answer your question, it all has to do with intentions and authenticity. Mm. A lot of people are going out there, let's say, uh, maybe not a lot. I don't want to be cynical. Some people might be going out there to take selfies and we, there's an expression I've heard, petting the poor. You know, you go out for a few days mm. and then you post it on your Facebook and, you know, it's, it's look at me. I think people know whether that's authentic or not. Mm -hmm. And like anything, you know, we see a bunch of fakes and phonies in all aspects of life, in business, in, you know, in friendships, right? In relationships. And then we see really deeply authentic people. So, you know, I think maybe just the, simply posing the question, is this authentic? Why do you want to help? You know, in some ways, like and would me you getting into it was a little bit of penance. Camera. Like I screwed up so badly for 10 years, you know? <laughs> I was, uh, I rewatched the mission, you know, there's like a sense of Robert De Niro, like taking that whole bag, like up the mountain, you know, as mm -hmm. penance for, for what he had done. And then actually it's an interesting, um, film even he then falls in love with the mission. And in that case, the people that he persecuted, and he like goes and lives deeply, like it, it, mm -hmm. it, it overcomes him. I think. And I've seen that, you know, yeah. I think uh, we've, we've all seen people who you're, you're faced with a problem and you say, not on my watch. Yes. You know, your thing, you've, you've been very, very helpful to us over the years. And, and thank you for that, for raising awareness for water and for giving, but water may not necessarily be your thing. Right. And I've got friends that are working in the criminal justice system and that is their thing, like mm -hmm. justice and unfair incarceration. Other people are working on Parkinson's disease because mm -hmm. they lost a loved one and they know that so many people are suffering. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just, you know, you want the people you want, you want it to be authentic. Of course. You, know, you don't want anyone out there taking selfies. You don't want anyone in a hospital, you know, or a lab pretending to find a cure that's not right. That there's not integrity in it. And everyone needs to run toward the thing that gives them the most sort of fuel to light that fire of, of, you know, passion to want to help. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's been so incredible for me is to be able to work with so many organizations, including yours to tie them together, to say water matters for women and for education and for the environment. And look at the way that these systems are interconnected. Mm -hmm. We have to fix these problems. We have to look at these things and I know that as a person with a platform like mine, I'm in a unique position because I have so many folks that I get to talk to every day. Not everybody's going to care about water or education or women's issues or the environment. But the more I can talk about the interconnectedness of those systems, the more I can hopefully just be like a flashlight for people on something that is their thing. And 
it does feel like a not on my watch. It feels like if I have this opportunity, who would I be to waste it? Yeah. What am I going to do with my platform if I'm not trying to make the world a better place? Talk about lip gloss? Like, what are we, what are we doing? Well, and hopefully there are people listening that just can be encouraged by that. You know, so mm-hmm. what's in your hand? You have a platform. Yeah. How do you use it? There's plenty of people Everybody that are not does. using their platform for anything. Yep. yep. I mean, we know a lot of them. So and we, we want them to kind of catch the vision that, wow, I could, I could, I could bring my community. I could shine a light on this. Yeah. And that leads me to my next question, which really, and I'm sure everyone who's listening is thinking, well, what can I do? What can people at home who are listening do to help? How do people get involved with Charity sure. Water? How do they, how do they begin to, to use their platforms? There's a community that we launched on our 10th anniversary called The Spring. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a really good video. So if anybody wants to just kind of see the images of, you know, Dr. Gary and the ship and all this and what does it look mm-hmm. like to actually drink bad water, we created a, a really beautiful short film. Uh, I think you just go to thespring.com or, yeah, I think so. we just set up a new website, thespring.com. And think of that as Netflix for clean water. Mm. or Spotify for clean water. We just wanted to encourage a bunch of people around the world to give what they could every month. We have a lot of people giving $30 a month, which is what it costs us to help one woman or girl move from dirty water to clean water. Mm. We have small businesses giving $100 or $200 a month. We have people in college, uh, you know, broke students who write us and say, I can give $10 a month. Mm. You know, it's a couple coffees a month or, you know, I won't have beers on a Friday, you know, down at uh, or give up a couple of cocktails. And I think we've been surprised at how our promise to that community is that 100% of what they give every month goes straight to help people get clean water. And then we go back to them every month with stories of impact. And we show them the change that they are making through their uh, sacrificial giving in some cases. Mm-hmm. A woman just wrote me in her 90s, it's giving from her pension. She's like, $10 a month is a lot of money for me, but I believe in this. People should have clean water. Mm. So uh, that's just one great, and and people can just share the video too. It's gotten 20 million views or so. It's just the more, I was flying on a plane last night to LA and the guy next to me is like, wait, I've seen your video. I shared it on my Facebook and then all my friends shared it. And I know exactly about what you're doing. And he started telling me about water and telling me about the ship and Dr. Mm. Gary. And, you know, it was really cool. So, yeah, I guess if people did one thing online, it was go to thespring.com, check out the video, share it, and consider joining us in that community. And then, um, you know, for the readers, uh, I wrote a book. You, uh, We did that event together. It's called Thirst. Um, it's a little more about, I guess, all of it, the building of the organization, the struggles, mm. the near bankruptcy, there's lawsuits in it, there's... Um, bouncers with guns. There's definitely some some drama in it. And all the money goes to Charity Water. So I, mm. I gave away the whole advance and all the proceeds. I read it on Audible. So I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. And I think it's, it's uh, a great way to, if you want to go deeper in this issue, you yeah. know, we tell about, tell stories about a lot of the women and girls who also have clean water. We only focus on the negative. It's amazing when people yeah. have clean water. No, it's incredible. Women tell uplifting. us that they feel beautiful for the first time because mm. they have enough water to wash their face and their bodies. They keep their kids clean. They wash their kids' school uniforms. There's so many amazing stories that I was able to write about of just the transformation that tr- clean water brings yeah. for communities. So well, the go to thespring.com or, uh, or check out the book, Both Support Charity Water. Yeah. The book is such a beautiful story and, and also for people out there trying to figure out how to be entrepreneurs or social entrepreneurs, there's so much business 
just experience and information in the book too. So I and a lot of boneheaded things we did. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I really wanted to talk about the stupid things that we did and and the times that we almost blew the organization up. And you know, it's it's funny. I have this picture. I know Adam Run well, and over the years and. I mean, you know, you guys riding mopeds trying to figure it out. But if you stick with it, you know, now mm -hmm. you've got a professional organization in pencils mm -hmm. that's built hundreds, if not thousands of schools and has local staff. So I, I think, you know, I was hoping that sometimes Charity Water feels so put together, you know, mm. by people on the outside. I'm like, oh, it was a totally hot mess. You know, yeah, here's all like, the stupid no, no, things no, no, that we you did. Didn't see. It, well, here's what you didn't see. Um, yeah. And maybe the way of just encouraging others that maybe it feels a lot more messy as they're building towards their cause yeah. um, or their organization. And some of the things that we did to that worked that, you know, helped us raised half a billion, almost half a billion dollars. So you said the perfect thing to lead me to my last question, because from the outside, everything tends to look great. And I would say everyone who sat across from me in this room is a person who anyone out there in the world could look at and think they've got it all figured out. But I think we all know that we're always trying to figure it out. Sure. And... That's why the podcast is called Work in Progress. And I'm curious to know in the midst of what's working, what feels like a work in progress in your life right now? Oh my gosh, so much. We could do another half hour on that. <laughs> I'm, I'm really struggling to find the balance between leading the organization at this size and scale and two young kids at home. Yeah. Um, this was, last night was my 46th flight of the year and it's July. And now, you know, my family gets to come with me on the road sometimes. And my son's been on probably 30 planes and he's come with me a lot, even at a, you know, almost five. Mm -hmm. But it's so hard. You know, I left the house yesterday around 6 p.m. in New York and he was screaming, you know, daddy, don't go. And I'm here for three days, you know, I'm mm -hmm. here in San Francisco tomorrow. I'll be back on Thursday and I'll take Friday off and we'll have a long weekend together. But that has been really tough. I remember reading a book of a very famous I won't mention his name, but a very famous um, humanitarian many years ago, he started a, a charity that became a billion dollars over, you know, a hundred years or so. And, you know, he was flying around the world. He was a great humanitarian and his daughter committed suicide mm -hmm. and said something to the effect of her note that my dad might've been a dad to millions of other kids, but wasn't to me. And I remember I, I read this 15 years ago and thinking I will never make that choice. You know, I will always be, I will never make that choice. Mm -hmm. And the demands of the organization, you know, we've been growing 40% a year. Like it's just, it requires a lot of me fundraising for the overhead, a mm -hmm. lot of travel, a lot of mm -hmm. speaking. And that's just, that's the balance. So that is finding that right balance is a, is a real work in progress for me. And the other thing I think is just, I'm constantly frustrated by how little I've done. And this, this surprises some people because Again, if you're in the social entrepreneurship space, I mean, we've grown very quickly. We've raised a lot of money. We've got millions of followers on social media. And mm -hmm. It looks like we've done it right. We have done a fraction of what I thought we would have done by now, what I mm. thought we should have done by now. So I, am, I do not feel successful. I do not feel like I have been, I, I, were, you know, I, would, I thought we would have done at least 10 times by now. So in some ways, I'm, I'm kind of hard on myself. It feels like mm -hmm. my inability to raise the money at scale, my inability to, as a leader you know, to build the machine. Now, we're going to raise $80 million this year. So we're not a small organization. 
Right. But I think it should be 400 or 800. I mean, right. it's clean water, right? It's 100% of the money going. So I still feel like I haven't unlocked the potential. Mm. Uh, and, you know, uh, I can, that could be a bad place to, like, I don't celebrate the wins, you know? My that. my dad turned up um, Monday at the office, and we do an all hands. We begin the work week together as a team, and we end the work to, together. And you know, I'm walking in on a Monday morning thinking of the nine things that are wrong, or you know, the hire that's been too hard to make, or just whatever the problems, whatever you know is feels wrong in the organization to me. And I didn't talk at all on Mondays. I normally just let the team you know lead it. And my dad texts me afterwards on his way out. He's like. I hope you understand like how remarkable the culture and the team and like, I hope it's not lost on you. And it is totally lost on me. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the reality is I need these outsiders to say it because uh, nothing is good enough. You know, there's this insatiable desire for more. Mm -hmm. Maybe that if we track all the way back to the club years, now it has a much more positive direction. It's more money for others. It's, uh, it's more locals on the ground serving their communities. It's more women and girls with clean water, but it still can be unhealthy to not celebrate the wins and say, mm-hmm. "Wow, we've we're about to cross 10 million people with clean water," and I'm thinking it's not enough. And you know that could be exhausting to work for as well if you're, you know, working on our team. Um, so I'm trying to do better at that. So that's like a personal work in progress. I love that because the name of the podcast comes from. I was asked to speak on something and you know when you realize you give advice that you need to hear yes i said this sentence i said you are allowed to be both a masterpiece and a work in progress simultaneously and i was talking to this audience about celebrating exactly where you are and still keeping your goals and your dreams in sight but like, don't get so obsessed with the goals and the dreams that you forget to celebrate where you are. Yes. And it's just crazy that that's the thing that you that's said. Because I'm like, that's, that's literally, with it. it's become the mantra of my life. And people think like, oh, that was such good advice. I'm like, no, no, I needed to hear and it. And we know it intellectually. Yeah. But it's still really hard yeah. to to act on it, you know, to, to believe that with integrity. You know, yeah. I want to do more. I so. get it. The good thing is that, you know, I haven't quit and it's 13 years in and <laughs> maybe I look back, you know, three years, five years, seven years from now and say, oh, wow, it, that actually was very little. Like the best, I really believe that the best is yet to come. So yeah. I'm, I'm super optimistic, but uh, it frustrates me sometimes that I can't just sit and pause and say, wow, like, the te- like we've achieved something amazing. Let's celebrate. Let's enjoy this. I'm always like, yeah. there's more. We need to do more. People are dying out there. Uh, but maybe give yourself fire. a day. What if you gave yourself like a celebratory something once a month? Yeah. Where, where, and you did it for the team in the office. It's easier to do for other people. I like it. You're in process people. now. <laughs> yeah. You know, where you say like, we're going we're gonna to have a little... Once a quarter. Gang meet up and we're going <laughs> to look at what we're really doing yeah. right. And I've then gotten, tomorrow I've we'll get so back much better at celebrating the wins. And I've okay. really, uh, <laughs> thankfully, I've given the reins to people who naturally want to do this. Good. Um, and then I just kind of shut up during those moments often, (laughs) but you got to let it in. That's my, that's what I'm working on. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming, bud. Thanks for having me. Thanks for your support and your friendship over the years. Always. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. 
And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy Cast. 